listening to Chill Spot Radio. Mental health, especially amongst people of color, has long been stigmatized, inadvertently keeping our people from accessing and reaching mental well-being. This podcast aims to transform stigma into strength. Your hosts work in the mental health field, bearing in their experience within the mental health profession. We thank you for your time in this brave space. Welcome to the Chill Spot Radio. I'm your host, Jared Morgan, my co-host. Dr. Alan Lipscomb. And today's guest on episode four is Dr. Boris Ricks, who is a professor at Northridge in the Political Science Department. I'll let you introduce yourself, Dr. Ricks. Uh, welcome, welcome, glad to be here. Uh, I'm Boris Ricks, an associate professor in the Political Science Department and the Associate Director for the Center for Southern California Studies. Uh, my areas of concentration are racial and ethnic politics, uh, urban politics, and relative deprivation in higher education. Glad to be here. Thank you. Perfect. Uh, topic today is uh, a little bit about uh, urban politics. Um, I'm sure you have uh, read about um, Malcolm X, Absolutely. Um, and um, I was talking about this one quote um, that he had, because uh, my wife actually just finished reading up the autobiography. And um, oh, okay, okay. The, the, one of the quotes in there was, when you spend your dollar out of the community in which you live, the community in which you spend your dollar becomes richer and richer. The community out of which you take your money becomes poor and poor. And um, I just wanted to talk about how that's been something that Black communities have experienced, for the most part, um, for decades. You know, after uh, Greenwood, um, or better known as the Tulsa riots, happened, it, and there's another one that happened, but I believe it was the decade prior in uh, Florida. Um, we, you know, it, it seems Rose, like Rosewood. Rosewood, yeah. It seems like we've had a really hard time uh, keeping the dollar within our own community, um, and does. You know, what do politics have to do about that? You know, we have plenty of uh, black politicians um, in a lot of urban areas, and yet we don't seem to be able to prosper in the way that uh, Malcolm X had uh, predicted that we could. Yeah, a couple of things I think we need to take into account there. I think the first thing we need to take into account is, you know, systemically, the institution of politics was set up to exclude African-American participation. Right. We need to be very, very clear there. And, and, and what I mean by that, if we look at the early criteria and you look at the criteria for voting and you compare and contrast that against um, racial and ethnic groups in America, you, you see that, you know, white, Anglo, Saxon, Protestant property owner excludes about three fourths of America. Mm. So moving forth with that premise, right? With that, with, with, with that ideological concept and then institutionalizing that ideological concept in the institutions of government, uh, Congress, any other elected officials, uh, real estate, you know, um, when you institute this in the market, uh, you, you, you clearly have a system whereby uh, Black folks have been continually marginalized, continually undermined, 
and have been led to believe that a black person purchasing a product from another black person means that the product that one's purchasing is of a lesser value. Right. So when you're the product of hate that hate produced, there's a psychological, there's a psychological burden that I believe, you know, follows one around and um, one consciously in some cases and unconsciously in other cases acts upon that. Yeah. So we tend to think that quote unquote, you know, having gone to school in the South, uh, uh, I'll, I'll use this colloquialism. We tend to think that the white man's ice water is colder than ours. Same water, same ice. No, yeah, I, you know, I really hear that, especially the part that uh, you talk about that is, uh, has a psychological effect. Um, mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, not only are we behind, economically behind, we always have this sense of trying to catch up. We've been excluded from this small inclusive group and uh, always, we, you know, yeah, we've, from that, we've learned how to really hate ourselves. And then mm-hmm. at the same time, it's just like we're, we're constantly, you know, running at full steam trying to catch up when essentially the system was set up so that we could catch up. Right, right, right. And I think it's important to take into account, well, you know, not only were there philosophical tenets and practices that were meant to be a barrier and hold back the progress of African Americans. But there are also public policies and the enforcement of such public policies, right? So, I mean, if we look at the early development of law enforcement, we see historically the role that law enforcement played early on Mm -hmm. was the role of slave catcher and retriever. Mm-hmm. So these loosely organized posses and or bands of white folk took it upon themselves to return uh, escaped slaves to their plantations. Mm-hmm. They somehow believed that it was uh, uh, it was indeligible upon them to deputize themselves and and to do this, mm-hmm. and they did it, which they, they, they did it in such a way where there was no regard for humanity, and so to formally for this to be the foundation upon which you know law enforcement emerged it is really, really interesting. So there is a long historical uh, record. There's a long historical uh, uh, documentation of injustices perpetuated by law enforcement under the color of law. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I was looking at some, some data the other I was looking at some data the other day, and it's just, it, it, it's so egregious that I think that 
the data that I examined, uh, this is some, some data from Pew, uh, and it looked at, you know, police stops, police arrests, and et cetera. And for a long time, the law enforcement in the state of California would not collect arrest rates, or they would not release the data. They collected it, but they would not release it. So, so now we're moving in a direction where we can get that information released. And what has been interesting, or shall I say startling, is the disproportionality of uh, arrest, the disproportionality of police stops, mm -hmm. arrests, disproportionality of folk going to jail for misdemeanor offenses sure. in one community and in another community, the same offense is, okay, uh, drive safely. It is, you know, it is, it is, it's extremely problematic. And I think historically having those kinds of issues and having that continually being a thrust. I mean, no matter how neat and how, how, how you have code switched and attempted to fit into um, the bubble, mm. you still stand out. Yeah. And you still can be, um, you know, you, you still can be a victim. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll give you a prime example, maybe about, let me see, this is, this is July. So in June, in June, I live in Inglewood. I was driving along the 405. I was headed somewhere and I, I was north on the 405. And uh, it was before the Santa Monica exchange came up, mm -hmm. headed north on the 405. A highway patrol vehicle got behind my SUV. I have a black SUV with tinted windows, uh, a GMC Yukon. And, you know, me knowing that my license are in check, my tags are in check, my insurance is in check. When that vehicle pulled behind me, I began to kind of, um, I, I began to to, to feel a way I've never felt before. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in South Los Angeles, so I've never really, you know, tripped off of the police. But for some reason, this particular day, in this particular time, it made me feel more uncomfortable than I've ever felt. Yeah. And um, I shared it with one of my colleagues, and he said, what you had was a physiological reaction mm -hmm to the police being behind you, resulting from you watching videos and or watching reenactments and or watching tapes mm -hmm. of black men being pulled over, beaten, shot, killed, murdered, um, through this state-sponsored violence. Mm -hmm. So we definitely we we, we mentioned that on a couple of the episodes because you know I, I talked about how I haven't been able to watch the the George Floyd video um, just knowing that you know, I couldn't I, I, I it would have just triggered me for sure. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this goes hand in hand, unfortunately, to what we were talking about in previous episodes is the, the, the psychological and the physiological impact of what we know to be true, what we see, right? What we read, what we hear. And, and I had the same thing happen last month. I went to campus to pick up some stuff and I was going northbound on the 210 freeway. Mm-hmm. Highway patrol, black, I have a black uh, uh, Santa Fe SUV, mm-hmm. uh, tinted windows as well. <clears throat> and uh, highway patrol pulled up behind me and then they got right alongside me and stayed with me, coast with me mm, about a mile. Oh, really? And I, about a mile. And I actively had to do some interworking psychologically just to keep myself calm, cool, and collected and not have a nervous breakdown on the freeway. And, and I chose not to look in the direction of the law enforcement officer, Highway Patrol, who was on the uh, right side of me, right? And then after, after the, 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 the Highway Patrol pulled off, right? <clears throat> It took everything in me not to have another nervous breakdown after what I had to hold on to and contain, right? Mm. Given, given that experience and that encounter. So I think what you're touching on it, it, it is so important. And I, and I think this brings to, to the next question without moving it too far away from where we're at right now is, I liked how you set up the history piece, right? I, I liked how you talked about the, the connection a lot of times we're hearing, or recently I'm hearing questions around what made this different, right? George Floyd, et cetera. What made it different for our society? What made it different for black folks, et cetera, and non-black folk um, this time around from a, from a political scientist point of view? Um, you had the I think you had the coming together of what I'm going to call the perfect storm. You, you, you had, uh, we, we have uh, conditions politically whereby uh, the president of the country um, dog whistles politics and not even dog whistles. The, the president of the United States is, uh, is, a, is a quote unquote race baiter. The president of the United States clearly appeals to white supremacist organizations, clearly has racial overtones in public policies, has racial overtones in executive orders, has racial overtones in speech. And the leader of the country having that particular posture and having that particular kind of conversation allows for others in the country to follow suit. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, according to the uh, 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 Anti-Defamation League, there's been an increase in Los Angeles County of hate crimes uh, perpetrated against Asian Pacific Islanders, Asian Americans, and, and, and other people of color. And it's been on the increase since about 2016 in Los Angeles County. Now, so that you can understand the magnitude of that, Los Angeles County 
is the largest county in the country. Los Angeles County is a county that, that is comprised of over 10 million residents, close to 12, close, close to about 12 million residents, right? And, and so within Los Angeles County, you have the largest population of Vietnamese Americans outside of Vietnam. You have the largest uh, population of Filipino Americans outside of the Philippines. You have the largest population of Chinese Americans outside of China, Monterey Park. These are cities within Los Angeles counties that have rich racial ethnic communities in majorities, right? And so having um, this rich diversity in the country, I think that um, the perfect storm was stroking the, the, the animus of race, you know. But then also, too, I think that George Floyd just may have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Why? Because we clearly saw an officer who had no regard for black life. A crime, a misdemeanor crime was committed. His brother died over a misdemeanor crime. He was a father, and it just it, it, it was just unsettling. And it was so unsettling that it rattled, as you mentioned, Alan, other people of color. And then it rattled white folks. Mm -hmm. So rattling other people of color and white folks meant that, you know what, this was no longer just a brother saying that he was treated, he was not treated well by law enforcement. Mm -hmm. This was a brother who wasn't treated well by law enforcement on live television that was seen by millions of people who understood this and involved themselves in a protest because it was that egregious. And so as a result, we have, we have a coalition of support. As a, as a result, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, moves to the center of influencing policy. Mm -hmm. At one time, it was to the left of influencing policy. Now it moves to the center of influencing policy and um, has created an environment that welcomes anyone to the table who rejects, uh, who rejects violence against Black folks mm -hmm. and other folks of color and transgendered folks and folks within folks who have been othered. Mm -hmm. So now we start to see protest movements that look very, very different. Now we see protest movements look very, very different, right? Correct. To compare and contrast, in 1992 after Rodney King, the civil unrest primarily transpired in South Los Angeles, right? Well, what happened? What made this civil unrest different, right? Okay, the first point we, we, we got, we said we have a multicultural and a multi-generational and a, a multi-ethnic coalition that saw this injustice. Secondly, when, the, when 
the civil unrest transpired, it wasn't primarily regulated to South Los Angeles. Guess where these folks chose to go this time? They chose to go to Beverly Hills. Right. They chose to go to white neighborhoods. They chose to go to white communities. And they chose to do that in an interesting fashion. So I'm not sure that that did not have anything to do. That's the, the second condition, right? And so I think the third condition, I think the third police brutality, number one, uh, uh, property crimes in high income areas, number two, that involved uh, a majority of small, mid-sized businesses and some large businesses. But, but thirdly, and this may in fact be, be the most important. When, 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 white, when other people of color and whites and other folk decided that they had had enough, decided to align themselves with Black Lives Matter, and then they brought their children with them to see this and to experience this and to protest with them, and then corporate America decided that, you know what, I need to pick a side. I need to choose. And corporate America decided that, you know what, they were going to support the movement for change, for fairness, for justice. And when corporate America got behind it, guess what we had? You had a movement, you had resources, and you had folks that didn't look like us who were speaking for us. Mm -hmm or speaking on our behalf and supporting us, right? So now the coalition and the movement has what? Has acquired resources, has acquired, you know, um, uh, 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 you know, influential folk and, 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 it's, and it's been powerful because guess what has happened since? Policies have changed since. There's, yeah. a, there's, there's a major conversation going around and several departments have already done it, defunded the police. There's a major conversation going around that, you know, why should we have police on a college campus? There's a major conversation that is transferring right now about defunding college police. So what does that mean? That means that, you know, we, we, we want to see um, public safety. We, we want to rename them everything, public safety officers. We don't necessarily, necessarily need them to be armed. So these are the calls and these are some of the things that have happened. So this has been a monumental shift. And of course, what we see now, finally, we see the impact, right? Right. The impact, the NBA, the, uh, the, the NFL, the Washington. Uh, 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 Redskins. Who, yeah, I didn't want no to, longer. Yeah, sorry. The, the Washington no team longer. is going to change their name. So I think 2020 has been a very, very pivotal year for a number of reasons. I mean, for a whole number of reasons. And this, this is historic. I, I, don't, I, I don't really know how the historians will write this, mm -hmm. but it's been, it, it, it's, been it, 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 it's been something that I thought I would never see. For sure. What do you think that it'll it's going to take to ensure that these uh, new policy changes are uh, 
you know, enforced. Uh, well, I think what's going to happen is, is that, you know, we're, we're going to have to hold politicians feet to the fire. Right. And, and, and that's one of the things that, that we need to do a better job of. Mm -hmm. well, well, how do you, you know people can, 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 you know, appeal for our votes and, and what we need to do is, you know, if in fact we're voting for someone, if in fact we allow someone in office, we need to make sure we vet their policies. We need to see how they vote on particular bills. And in the words of public enemy, uh, just because you're black don't mean you're a brother. You could be undercover. That part. So we need to make sure that, you know, if in fact you are going to advocate for the community that voted for you and elected you and make sure that the needs are met and services are provided, then of course, if you're doing that, you're good to go. But if you're not doing that, then you need to go. Right. And so we need to be able to differentiate and distinguish between the individual who is doing what they're supposed to be doing and the individual that's a shuckster. Like uh, your mayor in in Inglewood. So, so, so you talk about the mayor of the city of Inglewood? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole nother conversation, but yes. And, and, and another thing that I've been learning throughout uh, what's been happening is that, I mean, I feel like change can be hard in regards to defunding the police sometimes or uh, implementing changes because the power of the police union, which is kind of ironic because police well, you know, outside of them being a, a pretty much uh, legal overseers of, of runaway slaves, um, they they also were utilized to crush uprisings and unions mm -hmm. um, and during Reconstruction and, you know, the early 20th century. Um, you know, they were all even used by some of these presidents that we consider heroes um, to squash people. And yet... Here they are destroying unions, and here states are um, taking away the collective bargaining ship of unions, but you never have police unions in the mix of that. And it just seems like there's this threatening factor maybe that we're not talking about from police at this other end as well, um, that, you know, they get to essentially, you know, that's their collective bargaining uh, right. chip is this like, you defund us, you know, you might find well, a bullet coming through your front window. Right, right, right. Well, a little, a little bit about, you know, law enforcement unions in, in California politics. You know, at, at one time in California, particularly during the 80s, the most powerful, if I were to ask you to guess what the most powerful union uh, in California was in the 80s, would you be able to guess? No, not the 80s. How, I mean, agricultural Well, it started in the 80s, and they have been up until maybe 2000. The Prison Guards Union was the most powerful union mm -hmm. in California. And if you go back, and it's public information, you know, because they work for the state of California. Uh, a, if you go look at prison guards' salaries with, mm -hmm. with, with overtime, uh, prison guards, and uh, you wouldn't be able to tell a prison guard from a, a, a university professor on paper. As a matter of fact, you probably would want to be a, a prison guard when the, when the overtime was added up. 
on paper. So I say that to say this, that the rhetoric about um, the rhetoric around crime and who commits crime and using crime as a wedge issue was really, really prevalent and really went well in California. That's how you passed three strikes, et cetera. That's how you had this, um, this, this, this um, movement to, you know, uh, to criminalize misdemeanor, misdemeanor, minor offenses, criminalizing marijuana, criminalizing other, uh, uh, other drug uh, infractions that probably require treatment as opposed to, to prison. But what happened is that, you know, what we did was we built into the prison industrial complex, having built into the prison industrial complex, we basically gave the prison guards the numbers that they needed because as numbers went up, they had to hire more prison guards. And as they hired more prison guards, it was sort of mandatory that you were going to join the union. And if you were a tough on crime politician, and you had to be during the 80s and 90s, because of course, this was the height of the, you know, cocaine epidemic and, and, and other drug, uh, drug epidemics in our urban core, then of course, this, this is what you did. So prison guards and the police union was second. was second. So it was really, really interesting. And um, right now, I would probably say uh, uh, police unions are first, at least in California, and, and prison guards are, are, are second. So what, what, what does this mean? Uh, this means that there are organized efforts to disregard reform. There are organized efforts. As a matter of fact, um, when the decriminalization uh, uh, calls for decriminalization transpired as early as as, as three four weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago the LAPD had uh, a blue flu. Well, they didn't really call it a blue flu, but they had an epidemic whereby 200 officers called in sick, and it was the day after the mayor Mayor Eric Garcetti. Um, um, revisited the budget and reduced the amount he was giving to the LAPD. So some say it was strategic, some say it was uh, deliberate, but nevertheless, the message was sent. The message was sent, right? Now, um, when we talk about law enforcement and we talk about the LAPD, we're, we're, we're talking about the premier police department in the country. You know, we're, we're talking about uh, uh, we're talking about a force of less than ten thousand officers that patrols the second largest city in the country. Over, you know, the second largest city in the, in the country, almost, you know, close to four hundred square miles. You know, it's, it's a, a lot of area, Los Angeles, right? Well. You know how many police department New York City has? To give you a, a comparing a, a compare and contrast, New York City, largest city in the country, guess what? 40,000 officers on the force. 
Yeah. They're like a. So they're four to one to our police department in size. Wow. So so their union is a lot stronger. Uh, LAPD has the infamous uh, title of being the department that started SWAT. Being the department that used military tactics going back to uh, uh, going back to um, the Watts riots. You know, these paramilitary tactics um, and uh, just being a force that, you know, I mean, that, you know, I mean, at one time was racist. Probably kind of still is, huh? You know, so I mean, but it was so blatant at one time, right? I mean, there have been some reforms since, you know. Yeah. To, you know, if we just, you know, there have been some reforms since, but you know, I mean, Daryl Gates was, I mean, Daryl Gates was a pretty draconian police chief. Hmm. To give you an example, uh, Tom Bradley, who was a former LAPD police officer who rose as high as he could have risen at the time because of, uh, uh, um, glass ceiling and what have you. And so Tom, during evenings, uh, uh, started going to law school, started taking law courses, right, at Southwestern University. Ended up getting his law degree and decided he wanted to do something else after he, he retired from the department. But during the civil unrest, uh, 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 during the Rodney King civil unrest, Daryl Gates and Tom Bradley hadn't spoken in three months. Now, if you can imagine the city government structure in Los Angeles, right? Mm -hmm. The mayor chooses a police chief, right? So the police chief basically technically works for, you know, is chosen by the mayor and confirmed by the police, by the city council. Right. Police commission, right? Police commission offers up to, well, lo and behold, guess what happened here? These two people who one would think would have to work together no conversation, three months. That's how bad the relationship was. Hmm. So wow. we, we've had an interesting record of police chiefs in Los Angeles. You know, you know Willie Williams. I mean, we, we we have it. We've had an interesting record of police chief. You know, Bernard Parks. We've had police chiefs. We have it. We've had African American police chiefs, and some people believe that. Even though we had African American police chiefs, nothing really changed for the for the black community or the African American community. It was pretty much still the same. Some say, some suggest. So it's very, very interesting there. And I mean, you can write about the LAPD at any point in time uh, during various epochs, and it's going to be a bestseller because that's just how. I mean, the LAPD is a story within a story. Right. Let, let me ask you this, Dr. Riz, because I'll be remiss if I did not ask you this before we, you know, close out our time together. With this being election year, and not even taking in consideration, well, probably taking in consideration everything that's happened before 2020, but given what has happened in 2020, what, where do you think we're headed? What, what, what are we seeing? I know this is un unprecedented and, and the way we're going to be voting come November, given the, the pandemic that we're in, 
with coronavirus. What are your thoughts? That's an excellent question. Uh, that's an excellent question, Dr. Lipscomb. Let me just say this. This election, November 2020, will probably be the, the most important and significant election of our lifetime. Now, I thought I, I saw it all when we elected an African-American president, Barack Obama, twice. I, I thought that was monumental. But this may be the most important election um, that, that, that I've been alive for. And I'll say why I believe so. Uh, we're, 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 we're at the, uh, we're at the precipice of, uh, of, of, of potentially racial strife. Um, it seems like this president was able to get elected in 2016 because this president didn't have a record to run on, right? We didn't know anything about it. This president had a record to run on. Well, now this president has a record to run on. As of today, the Washington Post has noted that he's lied 20,000 times since he's been in office. As of today, 20,000 wow. times. Wow. Um, his tactic at present is to blame Dr. Fauci for the coronavirus and focus the attention there so that the mistakes that the administration has made, the missteps the administration has made, the fumbles that the administration has made will be overshadowed. Well, um, that's probably not gonna happen. He's forcing us to choose between the economy and our health because he believes running on the economy gives him a good chance to win like it did in 2016 as he thinks. Well, there's something that's very interesting and very unique. He's five percentage points down and what we would call that, we would call that basically a dead heat in Texas. Now I'm gonna tell you something. The way the states have voted in the past, if the states vote like they voted in the past, and if he loses, say, he, he, right now he can't get elected without Texas. Right. He can't win the presidency without Texas. I think his advisors have been trying to, you know, talk him down. But this man is a um, narcissist. And with that being said, I had to give you. The, the, the backdrop and storyline to, to really try to address your question. For sure. I am not sure that he can get reelected with what has transpired. I, I attended a black college in Mississippi and then I went to graduate school at Ole Miss. So very familiar with Mississippi politics and Mississippi history. You know what happened uh, last week? Yeah, they. I was shocked. Mississippi yeah. voted. Mississippi voted to remove the Confederate flag from the state capitol. So to give you some context there, Mississippi, 
<laughs> Mississippi is uh, is, is is first in every negative indicator you want. Mm -hmm. uh, income, uh, health outcomes, education. employment, etc. Right, but for some reason or other, they, this place held on to uh, Confederate flags, Civil War uh, monuments, and etc. Um, and for them, Mississippians. Racism and patriotism were one and the same. They're one and the same. So for Mississippi in 2020 to remove the Confederate flag, for the Washington team to decide to change their name in 2020, for these events to happen and transpire, for the mayor of this uh, of, of, of Washington D.C. to paint Black Lives Matter and change the name of the street that leads to the White House, for Mayor De Blasio in New York to paint Black Lives Matter in front of Trump Plaza, the street along the street right in front of Trump Plaza. What I see are some significant events that will have an impact upon voters because I think voters are savvy enough to know and I think that Donald Trump has taken the Republican Party a little bit further than the Republican Party wanted to go. Yeah. And so now there's an organization well, I mean, they've been around for a while, but they, they have full steam and momentum now. These are Republicans against Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. However, um, let's just say he does not get reelected. Well, he, he, he has done something that has, that will, that will have monumental impact. He's changed the landscape of the courts in the country. He's appointed more judges than Barack Obama and Bill Clinton combined. And the judges he's appointed, he, he's appointed aren't necessarily qualified. If we look at the ABA, American Bar Association, American Bar Association gives ratings and they rate, and they rate judges and rank judges. And these judges don't necessarily have the ratings that one would expect them to have to be elevated to uh, uh, to federal courts. Mm -hmm. So the courts have been stacked. Now, some thought that that automatically meant that the courts would lean to the right, lean Republican. Well, you know, in the most recent rulings, they didn't. Right. As a matter of fact, these you know most recent rulings um, were not what the president expected. So the president you know, tweets and, 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 and does his thing that he always does to try to, you know, stroke uh, animosity amongst groups. I personally think that the president doesn't get reelected, but I also think that he doesn't go away quietly. No, I don't think so whatsoever. And, and before you go on, I wanted to make a comment about that, um, what you were saying about, you know, 
people and politicians really making this change. I, I have a feeling too that some of these judges are feeling like they know better now than to, you know, lean all the way to the racist right sometimes. And not that all right is racism, but uh, in regards to what the administration was hoping because um, once uh, people of non-color jumped in and, and were protesting and joined the coalition, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the, the the rise of the Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War and Ulysses S. Grant, probably like one of the only good things that he did during his presidency was use the military to actually squash him through coercion. And so, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, you know, now that we are at this point, you know, we're not using actual coercion, but social media has allowed us to expose these people and then they're losing their jobs and things. And so I think people are going to start pulling back a little bit and recognizing that there is a force to be reckoned with now and which had been lacking for quite some time. Uh, particularly, you know, to kind of draw a parallel to the quote earlier from 1968, um, or I'm sorry, that was when, you know, the early 60s before Malcolm X was assassinated, but, you know, the 64. 64, yeah, he didn't have the, they didn't have the same force that we have now not only do we have you know this technology but we also have of canceling people out but we also have uh, a mass amount of people of non-color in this movement yeah, yeah, and yeah. they can destroy the lives of these people who are essentially racist i think you i think you're absolutely correct one of the things that is really fascinating that we see today is um it's not enough to be non-racist you know, non-racist is a comfortable place, but you know what? You, 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 you need to be made to be uncomfortable. So it's not enough to be non-racist, but you need to be black anti-racist. Right? So you have to go to the next level, right? Mm -hmm. And so what, what needs to happen is that if in fact, Black folks, if in fact people that look like us are the only people talking about racism, then we, we haven't learned anything. What we should have learned is this. When there is a collective voice, when there is a targeted mission, a collective voice, uh, clear minds and healthy hearts, this is what happens. This is what happens. So I think there's going to be some changes that historically 2020 is going to, to, to probably be the, uh, it's going to be like, you know, Charles Dickens, <laughs> the best of times and the worst of times. 2020. It's, it, it, I mean, it, I don't even know what to say about it. It's just, I, I mean, from the beginning of the year, uh, I mean, you know, the tragedy and losing uh, you know, Kobe and Gianna to, you know, where we are now. I mean, 2020 is just, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if we can take very much more, right? What this yeah. essentially does for me is that, you know, hey, if you did not believe in God before 2020, <laughs> 2020 converted you. It's a hell of a year. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the best way to put it, eh? It's a hell of a year because it's if you did Yeah, if you didn't, you 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 believe now. Yeah.
Well, you know, thank you, Dr. Ricks, for coming on today and uh, and chatting with us yes, about that. Thank uh, you so much. Oh no, no, thank you. I mean, I, mean, I, I mean, you know, uh, uh, it, it gives me a sense of pride on campus when I see you all because you know uh, it is important to have uh, uh, symbolic figures and symbolic support and folk who you stand with in solidarity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I might not physically be standing there with you, mm-hmm. but, you know, I- I'm always going to be supportive of, you know, brothers in the academy. Yes, yes. That's Absolutely. the only way I can say it. I'm always going to be supportive of brothers in the academy. So, uh, you know, just, just, just keep doing what you do and, uh, you know, reach as you climb yes. and make sure you pull somebody up. That's all I can say. Yeah. That's everything. Thank you. We will. And um, we'll probably be having another chat with you uh, before the election. I think that that'll be important for this oh, year. Oh, before per- and right after. After, yeah. <laughs> put, it on the, put it in the calendar now, yeah. I, I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, thank you for uh, listening in. And uh, thank you again for uh, coming and speaking to us today on uh, Chill Spot Radio. Absolutely. And and you all take care of those families and and stay safe and sound. And and I guess we back in. Yep. We back in. We we, we back in. So uh, let's take care of that mental health. Absolutely. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. All right, my brothers. Thank you for listening to the Chill Spot Radio. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on our webpage at chillspotradio.com.